The Big News Coming Soon podcast is proudly sponsored by BRB Homes. BRB Homes is Ireland's number one award-winning manufacturer of factory-built homes. We take your home from start to finish. Our homes are A-rated and meet planning regulations. We build to your requirements and your budget. The cost includes your home being turnkey and our chartered engineer's fees. Please get in touch for reviewing of our show homes a brochure or for more information let brb homes take the stress out of your build check out brbhomes.ie hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th do you want to tell people the big news all right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. This week I'm delighted to be joined by Lisa O'Sullivan-Shaw. You're very welcome, Lisa. Thank you, Alan. And thanks a million for making the journey to Mayo. How was your journey today? Fabulous. Have you have you been in Mayo much? <laughs> no, not really. We came down all right to Westport with the boys to Briefy House, um, but it was winter time. So I said we'll make another trip. But um, And you were waiting for me today as well and you uh, took a little peep into Penny's. I did, yeah. Now, I did tell you that the Castlebar Pennies is the smallest pennies in Europe. Uh, Facts. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I would have to agree with you. <laughs> were you su- were you super disappointed when you went in? Ah, no, no. I was only going for a little wander. It was the super value across the way with the fresh cream cakes was more uh, in my eyeline. Delicious. Uh, we have a huge pennies in Ballina, just over the road. It's probably half an hour over the road. And most Castlebar, a lot of Castlebar people would go over there for a day out. Right. To the big pennies. I believe you, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> I've been following you for, for quite a while and I think you've got a great story. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, first of all? Yeah, okay. So I'll give you the synopsis and you can, we can go back and forward. But um, so my name is Lisa O'Sullivan Shaw and I'm originally from Kerry. I am a small village, um, a GA village called Ballyduff. So I um, grew up there. And um, I was born with a cardiac condition called pulmonary stenosis, which meant that I had open heart surgery at six weeks old. Um, so I was in Crumlin for the first three or four months of my life. I had my second open heart surgery in 2019. And um, in between all that, um, when I was living in Kerry, I started modelling at 14. I won Miss Ireland Universe when I was 19 or 20. 
and I went off to Miss Universe in South America to represent Ireland and um, Mr. Trump owned it at the time, met him there. Um, after that, anyway, I came home from the Miss Universe and I was in a long term relationship and we split up about a year later and I said, oh, I just wanted to go somewhere, do something. I was only 20, 22, 23 at the time and um, off to New York and I went with actually my ex's sister. We went for a three week holiday. I never came home. New York to me was just the bee's knees. So I stayed there for a while anyway and um, I eventually ended up meeting my husband out there in Gaelic Park. Where else would you meet them? We came home, did the usual, built a house, got engaged, got married. We had four baby boys in four years and everything was going grand and dandy. And then 2019, I was unexpectedly had to have another open heart surgery. So I had that open heart surgery. And from then, I would say it took me a good two years mentally to recover from that surgery. And that's where Modern Irish Mom, my Instagram page, kind of came out of it was more kind of a recovery for myself and it was, um, you know, something for me to kind of um, put my energy into. Okay. So there we go. Uh, That's my when, story. When did you set up Modern Irish Mum? The two year anniversary of my um, operation, which was Easter Monday, 2021. So a year and a half ago. D- wow. Nearly two years. Yeah. God, you have some following in a year and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Y- you're up on 20,000 now, are you? Yeah. I'm. I twenty one something. I'm just hanging there for the last six months. Ah, yeah, well, that's, just that's, that's another story. <laughs> yeah, but, just <laughs> um. So, how did the page grow so quickly? Then, did somebody share it, or how did it take off? Um, I'm I'm not sure really. I suppose I I just came on it, and I hadn't a clue of Instagram. I never I I had a page set up, my own personal page, never posted anything to it, and um. I always wanted to just come on and share my story and I'd be very open and honest about like I suffered so much mentally after my um after my open heart surgery that I just came on and I started chatting about how I felt and like you know this is normal and that's not normal and then I kind of brought in a bit of my fashion into it because I modeled since I was 14 and that never leaves you so I kind of you know teamed up with a few shops and just showed looks and things like that and then I got into reels when I found out how to do them. And I love, I love the crack. I love taking the piss. I love sarcasm. I love the Irishness of every, you know, all that kind of into it. So I started doing reels on family life, mammy life. Because like I had four babies in four years. Like I don't even know how I got through that or who that person was in those years. Because it was just mental. It was crazy. And a lot of people can relate to all that. And it's not all fine and dandy. And it's not all we're all matching outfits all the time. Now, I match the boys actually still. But, but much to their nines. But, you know, it's not all rosy and dandy. And I come on and I say that. And I tell things like that, you know. And people can take you for whatever way they want. I mean, they can, you know, they can, people judge you anyway. Let's go back. Let's go back to when you were 14 then in school. How did the modelling come about? 14 is very young. Yeah, 14 is very young, but I looked, I always looked a lot older than what I was. Were you that girl that got into the nightclub when you were 16? I was that girl that got into the nightclub. Yeah, no bother. I got into the over 21s, whatever. I'm now the girl at the nightclub going, Jesus, do you want me a D? (laughs) 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 I'm trying to do the reverse now. Yeah. So how did the first modelling gig come about? So there was a lady over the road, actually, who did a knitwear thing. And um, she just got me to come up, do a few photos then do a few fashion shows. I was I was kind of, actually at 14, I think it was the same height 
that I am now. I was like five eight at, at fourteen. You know, it basically took off from there. I was doing fashion shows. Then I got into agencies. I was with Celia Home and Lee for a good few years. Um, during Miss Ireland time, I was at Assets from Cork for a few years. So, um, yeah, it was. Is that Derek Daniels? No. Yes. Oh yeah, I know yeah. Derek. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 So when they started opening, in Cork, he's a tough man to work for. I'd say. He's not the toughest. Is he not? Of them all. No. No. I used to do uh, <laughs> the sound and lighting for fashion shows. Oh, very good. And Derek would be there. I shows. Huh? I wonder if we do sh- I did shows all over the country, so you wouldn't yeah. know. We would have been up in Dublin a lot, Dundrum, yeah. Liffey Valley, all them kind of places. Okay. So maybe we've crossed paths, but yeah. um, he used to fascinate me because he, he was really my introduction to that whole uh, fashion industry and the modelling and the fashion shows. Mm. And the stuff that goes on behind the scenes is incredible. How quick there's a turnaround. And oh, him, yeah. Now, I think when when he's in the zone, he's probably shouting and roaring and saying, Gal, yeah. come on, girls, let's go, 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 yeah. because you have to. Oh, God, yeah. And I, I think I just remember looking at him going, God, I could never do that job. Never. Well, you see, the girls he's working with, like, that's just, it's a job. At the end of the day, like, everyone thinks modelling is like, you know, this glamorous thing. It's not at all. It's hard work. Yeah. It's a job. You, everyone there is tuned into, like, you know, you said he's shouting, you know, come on, come on. That's nothing. You just expect someone to be, you know, telling you you're next and you have to change with enlightening speed. That's just normal. But um, yeah. I've worked for Celia Homely. So she is, um, she's one of the, the longest established model agency in in Ireland. So I had a great learning curve there. Right. With Celia. When you were 14 then in school, were you in the, were you in the pretty gang? Were you in oh. the- no. <laughs> how how are you not? I find that hard to believe now. No, um, I'll tell you, I went to a mixed school. I went to a big GA school. I went to Causeway Comprehensive. The crack was just, oh, if I could go back for a day. But I didn't always have great crack there. I had experienced a lot of bullying, which now I could call bullying. That Then at the time, it wasn't really called anything. It was just like... What, what were you getting bullied for? I said I was I was five eight probably at the time, so I was a lot taller than a lot of the girls in first year, and like uh, I suppose you know the the modelling at fourteen. I was in first year, I think that wouldn't help your situation now down in North Kerry. Well, you see, uh, in 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 our school, all the good looking ones got away with murder. No, and it was the ones that weren't so good looking or a bit overweight or not good at football got bullied. But then the pretty ones in the pretty gangs. Oh, no. Well, you see, I never had really a, a girl gang. I always find it very hard to make good friends with girls. I have good friends with girls, like since, you know, I can name them on one hand. Why do you think that was? Um, I don't know. I had, um, my bullying would have started probably in first year. Things written on the wall, whore, slut, bitch. All them kind of things and that it was just expected. And I started going out with a guy, I think it was say the end of first year or the start of second year. And I went out with him for nearly 10 years. They were being wrote on the female toilets by female. Oh, not in the female toilets, in the classrooms. In oh, the, right. In, in the classroom. So, and then you'd, you'd walk down the, the hallway and someone would shout out who or slush or a Male or like female? That. Mostly female. I would say 99% female. So a lot of jealousy then. Yeah, and I hate using that word and that word was always used as an excuse and I find that an inexcusable word because it lets people off 
with for their behavior and their actions it's well, it doesn't really let them off it does i know what you're saying yeah you know it, like there's no what i used to come home and i'd be crying and i'd say to my mother such and such said this such and such did that oh and your mother was they're only jealous they're only jealous i know you know yeah. so like and even I, I you roll on a few years i remember doing my junior search and a leaving search girl came over to the car where we were sitting in the car we our exam was done we were sitting in the car we were waiting me and my friend, we were waiting for her brother who was driving us. He was doing his leaving cert. We were doing our June cert. The girl came over from the leaving cert with eggs in her hand to to egg me and slap me or whatever with the eggs. And her mother was watching across the way laughing. And I'll never forget any of that. And that just summed up. And what did she do with the eggs? I wouldn't roll down the thing. Oh. I told her to go. <laughs> whatever. Um, but that was the... And everyone watching and everyone laughing, you know, this kind of thing. Now, if that was to happen today, you know, all that happened there was I went home, told my mother and father, and my father brought me to school the next morning to do my next exam because, you know, but there was no big deal. Yeah, but back then they throw it away and say, oh, she's, she's only jealous. Oh, she's only jealous. Her. But now yeah. you understand that it's obviously something deeper with inside her that um, makes oh. her so miserable that she has to deflect and, and send all that to you. Totally. Yeah. But, totally. I, but I, I suppose our parents didn't understand that back then. Yeah. And I think as well, there's a lot of gang kind of mentality. You know, she was in she was in a gang of those girls. I wasn't in that gang, that that girl gang, you know, or whatever. There was girls in my year who I got on great with. I got on great with nearly all of them. We had great crack. I love, as I said, I love crack, love messing. But in the classroom, I always gravitated towards the boys, not for anything else, because I had my boyfriend, and I was with him for ten years, and I think. That was nearly, um, I suppose, looking back on it now, um, that was like a safety blanket, you know. What age did you start going out with him? 14. I started going out with him until 23. And it was never off and we were never with anybody, uh, you know, else or whatever. So. And what kind of what kind of guy was he then? Was he into the football or was he? Yeah, he was very into it. Like GA was massive. Like you can understand like in the 90s when I grew up in, in North Kerry, it was school, mass on a Saturday, you or see, mass on Sunday. Yeah, I'm just trying to paint a picture <coughs> here because I'm just trying to think back to when I was 14 and if mm-hmm. if if Lisa O'Sullivan Shaw was in our school, she'd be beautiful and she's the tall, uh, beautiful... Were you blonde at the time? or No, what, no, no, I never dyed my hair till I was 18. Okay. I wasn't allowed. What colour hair had you? <laughs> brown, long brown the tall, hair. Tall, long brown hair. And then the male version of the school, the tall, dark, handsome uh, GEA player, basketball player, mm. would be with her. Yeah. Did that typically happen? He wasn't that tall. <laughs> okay. No, well, no I, don't want, I don't want to know his but, name or anything. No, But no, he wasn't but, that tall. Um, I love that story because I... <laughs> I'm oh always, God! I'm sorry to who he is. I'm always <laughs> being told I'm I'm too short, and I've been. Uh, no, he. It's not that he was small or whatever, but yes, he was the GA personality for sure. Like he ended up playing for Kerry, and he played for Kerry for years. And um, I don't know anything about that, by the way. And I'm not trying to bring it up. I'm just trying to paint a picture from school. Yeah, no, and you're right in that sense of the two of us had. It was like the prom, the prom king and queen. That's. <laughs> Was it a bit like that? <laughs> Everyone else in our school would be saying no. <laughs> yeah, I suppose, you know, like he had his thing and I had mine. And like we get we got on very well together. We were great friends, you know, and that that kind of. Well, it must have been very fairly pure then if it was 14 to 23. Yeah. It, it had to have been a bit. Uh, it had to be deep like. Oh, yeah. First boyfriends, first love and all this kind of crack. 
Yeah, absolutely. But there was, you know, I suppose you grew up together. And like when I go back to the bullying and all that kind of stuff and the jealousy, like that was like your safety blanket. Because as I was more, I was always able to, to get on better with the boys and have the crack with the boys because the boys didn't judge you. Whereas, you know, I just found it more difficult with the girls. And then there was no fear with the boys because the boys all knew who I was going out with. And then the girls saw you getting on with the boys and they wanted to get on with the boys. So then you were target number one. Looking back, I suppose, if we're going to... And this is better than going to therapy, Alan. Yeah, I I suppose looking back in it, perhaps. Because I was was the fat kid in school who didn't play sport Mm. and just ate Coke Pops all the time. And I had a really hard time. Mm. And it's interesting to me to hear somebody so beautiful as you, because I've been following you for a while and you're absolutely beautiful inside and out, that you had a hard time in school. I, I just... Maybe it's a bit of um, ignorance on my behalf. I just mm. didn't think the, the beautiful people in school got a hard time. Yeah, and I suppose I would never have considered myself the beautiful person in school. I just would have found myself um, not a, an, an easy target, but I was definitely a target. And I think what I experienced in school, it stayed with me for a long, long time. Is there one particular person, one particular bully that, that stuck with you? Like, is there a name that comes to mind when you think of There's bullying? a few. There's a few. Okay, yeah. how, how many? Mm, there could be four or five. That's a lot. Mm. Bad, bad bullies, like? Uh, yes. Like I had four or five in my school, mm. but there was, there was only two that stood out. Mm. There was only two that I would say they were bad bastards. Mm. And then the other three or four were kind of jumping on bandwagons. And you'd meet them now, and I, I'd, be, I'd play football with one now, and he's, mm. a, he's actually a lovely lad. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of that, like, that I go back and I say, mm, they were young, you know, and we all did things. And, like, I was no angel either. Like, you know, I could say a bitchy comment too. Like, no bother. I hold up my hand to that. But there's there's a thing with bullies. It's just this, I used to always think, how can you make someone feel like that? I would hate to ever think I ever made, made someone feel so bad in themselves, so hurt. And that's why I always, you know... I speak a lot of that on my page about like kindness and all that. And I know it's all thrown around that word a lot. Yeah. But, you know, we all have to be kind. Um, but we do. Everyone you know? everyone that slides into my DM to call me a bastard has be kind in their bio. Oh, really? The worst comments I get come from people that have all this flipping be kind and be yeah. nice nonsense. Yeah. Um, did your boyfriend at the time, did he find school easy or he had no problems in school? Oh, yeah. Like bullying-wise or anything like that? No. No. And then I suppose no. if you're playing GAA, you get away with murder with the teachers. Oh, yeah. They got away with murder. Like, there was a gang of them boys there. And sure, they were the apples of the eye. Yeah. And they all went on. A lot of them all went on to play county. And they were all geo players, like hurling and football. And a few of them went on to play with Kerry then in the football. And sure, that was it. Um, The modelling then, what was your first beauty pageant then? Or what, what do you call them? Do you call them beauty pageants or...? Yeah, well, the miss- I suppose it would be, but I've never entered one. Like, Did you go I to the Rose of Tralee or any of that? Yes, the, the same year that I won Miss Ireland, our model agent put us all in. So this, they, was twi- this was 2002? 2000, yeah, 2002. Was there, a, was there any small village ones like the Queen of Ballyshannon? No, or? no I never went into anything like that. Um, I was, was just your, modelling. What was your first one then? Miss Ireland. So you went from nothing? Yeah. To Miss Ireland, yeah. To win in Miss Ireland, mm. that's mm. crazy. Right. So yeah. t- tell me this journey. Then how did it come about? I 
was with a, an agency in Cork at the time. I was in college in Cork. Our agency put a lot of girls in for Rose Tralee and Miss Cork. Miss Cork it was at the time. So went along to this Miss Cork. Never had, never had been at anything like this before. And obviously it was a girl from Cork. Someone in our agency won that. But someone came up to me. The agency boss at the time came up to me and she said, before it was even over, she said, such and such is here, some promoter or whatever, and wants to put you into Miss Ireland as Miss Kerry. You, do you want to go as Miss Kerry, you know, and forget about Miss Cork? And I said, of course, yeah, um, big Kerry head. Just put me straight into uh, Miss Ireland then as Miss Kerry. So Miss Ireland was in held in Limerick um, for a weekend. And, and had you, you done any public speaking or anything? Nothing. Nothing. And nearly died on stage. I think it was Amanda Brunker that asked me the, my question, you know, on stage. And the question, I vaguely remember the question, something like, what qualities do you have over everyone else here that would make you a good Miss Ireland? Something like that. Because I, I nearly saw my life flash before my eyes. And at the time, um, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire had just started. And I just said, oh God, can I phone a friend? So while all the audience were laughing, I was thinking, there's me humour coming um, as an advantage. So I just said, quite openly, I said, I, d- I don't personally have anything over anybody else, which is the way I feel about, you know, but I just have myself and I can only be myself. Like me or lump me. And that was it. I... That night I won Miss Ireland Universe. So at the time the competition was split into two. Now it's two so- totally different competitions. Miss Ireland World and Miss Ireland Universe. So one girl goes to Miss World and one girl goes to Miss Universe. <laughs> what? Did what, you not know what's that? Miss U- what's the difference in Miss Ireland or Miss World and Miss Universe? <clears throat> so the Miss Universe was more of an American, I suppose, style pageant kind of thing. Um they sound and like the same tr- thing, though. The world they, and the universe. They basically, they basically are, you know, and it's the same kind of thing. Miss Miss World was, it was basically the same thing. It was just owned by different organisations. I think the Miss World was kind of a more of UK kind of thing. So, what was the Miss Ireland finals like then? Do you have to come out in underwear and or in in? Yeah, you have to come out. You have to come out in swimwear. Underwear would be just a bit weird, Alan. Sorry, I meant to say <laughs> swimwear. I meant to say swimwear. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, uh, you come out in swimwear and I was one of about three of us that came out in a swimsuit. So I just couldn't go out in a bikini. I did the exact same at Miss Universe actually. There was about 90 countries and I'd say three of us wore a swimsuit. The rest wore bikinis. I had to wear a swimsuit. I was like, I can't go out there. The whole of carry me watching me <laughs> in a bikini. But were you confident so, with your body? Like were you happy with your yeah, body? Yeah, I had no, I'd never spent a day in a gym in my life. At Miss Universe. Now I live in it. I love it. But I'd never up to that point did a sit up. But I was I was fairly confident with my I was more comfortable with my body more than confident, I suppose I would say. Um Did you have any complexes with your body? I I personally probably didn't because I know when I was modelling, um next to my name would be written, you know, y'all had um it was like an A four page with your name and the shops you like a running order is the name for it. Beside my name, there'd be J-Lo, Big Bum, written by the agency. All right. Because yeah. you have a big bum. Yeah, apparently. Yeah, I do. Okay. But like, you know, sure, who doesn't want one nowadays? Thank God. <laughs> 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 do 
get Ken by 20 years too late, but sure, I had one. I saw. I, <laughs> I saw, was the original. <laughs> I saw Classy Cody done a TikTok last week where she said, if you said 10 years ago, my bum looked big and that, people would be offended. Yeah. And now if you're told your bum doesn't look big, you're offended. Yeah, yeah. So it was like, uh, you know, I always had this thing when I was modeling that I had uh, a big arse. And never, it never bothered me, but it seemed to bother other people. But um, what can you do with it? You can't hide it. It's there. You don't strike me as somebody that has a big arse, though. I, I've only been in your company for an hour. <laughs> but it's not it's not one thing I would have that would have jumped out for me now. She's got a big arse. Well, now, I suppose in the modelling world. OK, you know? so compared to the rest of the models. Yeah, I would never have been like, a, you know. But some of them have no arse. Well, yeah, but so apparently you, on the ramp, that's a better look. I'm just saying no not from mine. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. do much for me now. Nor me. I have enough arse for three people, <laughs> so I can't really say too much. I, I have a big arse as well. Oh. Yeah, so, oh my God, everyone's going to be like, will you do a, a reel now on that? <laughs> <laughs> I won't be. <laughs> That's interesting. So your nickname then on the running order was J-Lo. Yeah, which like, what a compliment. Lo- I love her. I still love her. So if any of the shops wanted to show off fuller, big bum. It, it was more of a thing... Um, I would think maybe as a way of like um, getting me to lose it, to put it, put the thought in my mind, because, you know. Like a bully tactic. <clears throat> Perhaps. Subtle. Subtle. Do you really think that? Mm. Mm. Um, mm yeah. And was there anything else ever said to you? Like, was it ever brought up in any other way? Like, oh, God, yeah, it I was would said assume, to my face. I would assume in that world they would just say, here, lose the arse. Yes, it was said in that way, but not so direct, you know. Tell me how it was said. Um, I don't want to know who said it. But yeah, how, I won't tell you who said it, how, but how, how it was, was it like, phrased? you know, you'd be going out in the ramp and you'd get a, like, you might get a, a, a dig in between the shoulder blades, pulling that arse, pulling that, because I never really had a belly. There was no, you know. So were you walking down the ramp then, clinching your arse, trying to pull it in? <laughs> what a turn this podcast has taken. <laughs> I think it's fascinating. I'm interested to know. No, it was like, I always had that common sense of like, oh, Jesus Christ, what can I do with it now? I can't, you know, I can't hide it. It is the way it is. It was nothing major. And it's nowadays, as you say, nowadays it's absolutely... It's nothing, do you but know. But were you afraid that you, you'd stop getting gigs if your arse was too big? Did that ever cross your mind? No, no. But no. you had enough confidence to know, right, I'm going to keep getting gigs. I don't care what she thinks of my arse. Yeah, it's, it's something I never, ever thought about. It's something I never thought about. It was just something like, you know, once I was happy and content. But I'd imagine very few models are happy and content. Are the majority of them not all worried that it's going to end or that I won't get the next gig or I might be too fat or too small or too skinny or too fat? Well, I can't speak for a lot of them because um, the ones I worked with, I would say no. I know a few models and, I, and I've worked with a few models and in mm. a few agencies. I'd, I find some of the most beautiful ones very insecure. Mm. Is that, yeah. is that, a, is that a, a mad generalization? Am I, uh, is it I just the ones actually, I know? Yeah, I think it is kind of a generalization because, yeah, you know, and I, I don't want to speak for anyone else, but like I can only speak for the girls who I have worked with. And I don't think it's ever a conversation that we've ever, it's come up. I, I've never overheard any of them say, you know, I've only heard nice things. I've only heard them say to someone else, oh, you've beautiful hair or you've beautiful whatever. But would it not come up because they'd be afraid to bring it up? Would it not come up because they'd be afraid to let you know that they're a bit insecure? Is there not a bit of rivalry there? Like, I'm, I don't want you to know that I, 
I'm afraid this will all end in three years time. No, because I've never experienced that because I tell you, anyone I've worked with in that situation has been in that situation as in has had similar experiences. But does it not go through your head? What's the long term plan as a model? Does that not go through your head? Like I can't model forever. No, no, well, not for me because I, I live in reality. I live in I live in Ireland. The reality is, like I, I modelled full time after my year of Miss Ireland. But you, you realise quickly after that, it's not like a, a livelihood, like a long term. It's something that always needed for me. Always needed to be a sideliner. It was never something that I ever worried about because if it stopped, it stopped. Um, you always need a side gig. You always need a side gig. Yeah, yeah. But modeling in Ireland, it's not that lucrative financially. When you won Miss Ireland, then what was what was that experience like? Can you remember like what were you feeling? What was going through your head when you won that night? Yes, I will never forget it because at the time, the night before, we were in Limerick and we were all in, put up in this hotel. And the night before the final, I was in the room with the the other girl. One of the previous Miss Ireland's had come to the room to drop off something. Hairspray, whatever. I don't know what it was. But um, she came into the room anyway. And we just all got chatting. And she sat down with us. And we chatted for hours or whatever. I ended up telling her my story about the girls at school. Because I'd only... I was in college at the time then. And I'd say I was out of school. And we just started talking about school. What school was like. And I told her the story that I just told you. And when she handed me the crown the next night we'll say in the sash whatever and she just said this is what all that was about because she was trying to tell me the night before that was just about jealousy and I was so sick of hearing that word and that's exactly what she said to me when she was handing me over the thing while everyone was roaring and clapping and whatever and um, she said you know that's what all that was about and and I was like oh maybe maybe there was there's something to the jealousy thing but I'll never forget that feeling like of being Miss Ireland. Like I'm a ferociously patriotic person. I'm one of those people. You know I'm from Kerry. Within five seconds. So I'll tell you I'm from Kerry. And you know I love all the Irishness of everything. So it was like. It was a major. It was like the World Cup. <laughs> in my equivalent business. And in 2002. There wasn't much social media was there? Like There was zero. No. There was nothing. I mean I got a phone call. I was over at Miss Universe for three weeks. And it was when Ray Keane left Saipan. And I got a phone call in the middle of the night from an Irish reporter and these phone calls kept coming into the hotel room. Like I was picking up the hotel phone and I was like, what the fuck's going on? And they were saying, any comment on Roy Keane Ryan's? And I was like, I didn't know where we were. Like it was the middle of the night over there. There was, it was American TV. There's going to be nothing about Roy Keane and Saipan on that. There's nowhere for me to look up any information. So the reporters were telling me what was going on. And did I have any comment? I was like... <laughs> no yeah right right you know I don't know um so and when you went then to compete in Miss Universe mm. was that another level altogether another level you're going from where was the final of Miss Ireland Miss Ireland was in Limerick so you went from Limerick to Puerto Rico Puerto Rico yeah South America. it was Central America I think it is and how many <coughs> competed then in Miss Universe I think it was 80 something countries so you like you landed out there into a room with 87 yeah. International models. And I landed into the room with Miss South Africa the tip to win it. How did you feel then? Oh, Jesus, this is great crack. How the hell did I get here? Did you feel confident that you'd win it? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I was like, oh my God, imagine if it won, wouldn't it be amazing? But I'd, I'd no... 
I'm very much a realist in a lot of things and I always was. I saw girls there, I'd seen things I'd never seen before. There was girls who went to beauty schools and training schools for this Venezuela, South Africa. Who Spent their whole India. lives trying to be there. Their whole lives. This was this was their career. And you kind of fell into it. I fell into it and I was like, oh, mother of God, isn't this brilliant? Girl from North Kerry in the middle of all this. And I've always said it was the making of me in a lot of ways that I was so young that you could come out of that competition in two ways. One, you go, right, I'll never be happy with myself because I'm not her and not this and not that. Or you go the other direction and say, well, I don't have the nicest this or I don't have the nicest that, but I'm actually okay. And I'm, o- I'm, I'm okay with me. What was the experience like overall? Were the girls nice? Did, fabulous. Did you feel like one of the girls? Did you? Yeah, you fabulous. It? And I feel like we all came from a similar background and a similar, a similar experience. When I was Miss Ireland as well, like it just adds to the story that'll give you a clearer picture. I was Miss Ireland the year, um, I think I was 20 years of age. I was in college in Cork. My ex at the time was playing football for Kerry. People around would know who you were and what you were at and whatever. And, you know, I used to go out in, in town and I used to drive because I, I didn't drink at the time because it's so hard to get a taxi from Raw Kerry. <laughs> so I used to drive into Tralee. And you go on a night out and you used to be able to park in the, the small square at the time in Tralee outside, outside the pubs and stuff. And I come out to like my wing mirrors being broken off my car. People's throwing drink over me. People pulling my hair when you passed. When you were 20? Yeah. Yeah, the year of his Miss Ireland. I had all of that as well. So then I was going to a competition where you're telling the other girls and you're like, can you believe that happened? And then they have all similar experiences. And did you do anything about it? Did, you, you obviously knew these people because North Kerry is a small mm. place. You knew... Well, I didn't know who pulled off my wing mirrors. No, but did you, <laughs> did you know who pulled your hair or who threw the drink at you? I would have had a fair idea when I turned around to see who it was. It's usually a bunch of girls laughing or whatever. Or else they'd get their fella to do it. Make them feel better. Did you ever have to go to the guards? No. No. You just sucked I it didn't. up? I just sucked it up. Yeah. Did um, you ever think, fuck this? Yeah. Yeah, and it caused me a lot of mental anguish, we'll say, later in life. Deep into my 20s. Like... Why would you do that to someone? Why would you make someone feel like that? And it all exploded. All that stuff exploded when I had children and when I had my operation. It's amazing to me that you had all this confidence to go and represent Ireland at Miss Universe and walk into that room with the 80 other ones. And you come across that you were very confident at the time Mm. and that you had the confidence to do it, even though you had all this shit going on in the background Mm. and all this shit growing up. Mm. Where did that confidence come from? How did you just, how did you keep, like I'd find it very hard to go in now and into a room with 80 people, never mind compete against the mm. 80 people. And people would say to me, oh, you're very confident, but I'm, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm not behind it mm. all. I think when I, you know, later on when I did a lot of work myself and I went to counselling and all that kind of stuff, because I had to go, to go down that road. I think when I think back, if I go right back to the very start of my story, I think it all came from there. Like when I was born, I was barely in, I was born in Tralee, in the hospital there, the old hospital. And I was taken straight away to Cork that day. And then that night I was taken to Dublin. So for the first, we'll say, three months of my life, I didn't have the 
mammy and daddy at night time. My mother and father had to come visit me. And it wasn't every week or, you know, for the week like it is now. That time your child was up in Dublin in the hospital and that was it. So I do really believe that I had, even from birth and as a baby, I had just real strong independence of I'm here on my own. So I have to get confident, get comfortable with myself. And I always had that. I was always happy in my own company. How many is in your family? Just me and my sister. I'm the oldest. What's the age gap there? Nearly five years. And did your parents know before you were born there was going to be a complication? No. No. There was all drama, we'll say, you know, when I was born. So they told my mother I was probably going to die. They told my parents I was going to die that day. So I was baptised and sent off. I do have that sense of, um, it's like, um, you know, I don't know what kind of a feeling to describe it. But it was like... A warrior. Yeah. Not really, but because I used to think that like, but who was with me? Because I can't imagine, like, I have four sons myself and I can't imagine not having that little, you know, that one-on-one time. And I feel like I must have had some subconsciously. Now, I'm not a psychologist, but that's where I think I get my ferociously independence from and my confidence because I don't need anyone else's validation because I was there on my own. Did that kind of make sense? Yeah. I'm, I'm quite comfortable with myself. And growing up then, that condition, what was it called again? Pulmonary stenosis. I don't know anything about it. Does it reoccur then or what happens? It's a narrowing of your valve, but mine never opened. So they just had to blow it open with a balloon. And basically you live a a normal life. But, you know, I used to always find running. I used to play GA, of course. And, um, you know, you make you do laps and I'd be dying after the laps. Sure, like... My parents were, I suppose, of an age where there was there was no real education on it. So as far as they were concerned, I had the operation. I was grand. That was it. It wasn't something that they ever thought that I would have had to have more surgery or. But um, pulmonary stenosis is a congenital heart condition, which means you're you're born with it and you have it for life. So, um, it didn't it didn't give me any restrictions growing up whatsoever. Um, I went for yearly checks and all that when I was pregnant. I had fantastic care. You get your your classes high pregnancy, a high risk pregnancy on all of them. Um, so I had brilliant care between the mater and the rotunda, and it wasn't until after all that that it all kind of went to shite. What happened then? So I had my after having my fourth baby about two years after that. Like all oh, the boys, they were in routines, sleep routines, and everything, and I just started getting really tired, really breathless, and. I was going in for yearly checkups into the matter and they said, oh, um, I think something is enlarged, you know, one side is enlarged. So we'll send you for more tests. And this was all very airy fairy at the time, you know, um, we'll send you for this and we'll send you for that. That was grand. This went on for however long, months, nearly a year. And um, they brought me in then one day, my normal thing. And they said, um, your man sat down opposite me and he just said, oh, I've a bit of news. Um, we're going to have to replace that valve. Replace it? Replace it. So again, I didn't think anything because there was no, the, the word open heart surgery would have been gone out of like existence because a lot of cardiac procedures are now through your groin or through uh, up around the neck into a vein, maybe in the hand. So the old open heart is like the old barbaric kind of way of having to do things. What year was this? 2019? 2019. 2019. Were, yeah. you, were you on your own here today? 
uh, that day. Yeah. Yeah, it was actually, it was, uh, I think it was just before the Christmas of 2019. So you went in just thinking it was a routine yeah. chat? Yeah, I had done stress tests, I'd done um, angiograms, cardiac MRI, whatever. And I was thinking, oh, this is grand, you know, whatever. And then initially when he said, we're going to have to change this, it was supposed to be, don't worry, it'll be in through the groin. I was like, oh, grand, that, that'll be fine. It'll be only a few weeks off work or whatever. Long story short, it all transpired. They couldn't get the valve in through the groin because it was too big they there was a lot of damage done that there was no actual they described it as a door frame so if you have to fit something the door into there was no frame so it'd have to go in through the chest to create a frame for the valve to sit into and she rang me at like christmas week i was in the gym and um she was like oh really bad news i'm really really sorry um but basically you have to have open heart surgery when you come to us there in january and we set up a date so that was the end of the start of my horror. What went through your head when you got that phone call? Tell me where you were. You were in the gym. I was in the gym and the four babies were in the crash in the gym. And there's a crash in the gym. <clears throat> yeah. It used to be great. It was a drop in centre. That's a very fancy gym. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's great. So you were doing a workout. Doing a workout. I was on a spin rings. bike. Yeah. I'll never forget. I was on the spin bike, came off the bike, was doing a class. And the phone rings at Matter Hospital and um, it was the, the cardiac nurse. And she said, I'm really sorry. Um, we tried with the, with the, they were get, trying to get a supplier in the US or something. And they discuss your case, you know, what, in these meetings every, whatever. We have to go in open heart surgery. There's another, and I kept saying, so are you sure? And it's like, I thought it was getting it through the grind. Here me trying to like re- rationalize with her. And it was like, just, that's it. And next week is Christmas week. So come in, you know, we'll see you in January. And we'll send you up to the surgeon. And that was that. And immediately I just fear, fear, like the thoughts of having open heart surgery. And then when I went to meet my consultant, um, which turned out to be a Kerryman. So I went in to Black Rock Clinic and... Um, but before that, you had to pick up the four boys from the crash. Oh, yeah. Put them in the car and pretend, yeah. that, pretend everything was okay. Well, I rang my husband, I'd say straight away. Were you really upset? Balling, yeah. Yeah. And then I think I rang my mother and father and probably my sister. And oh. I was petrified and straight what, away. What what were they what were they saying to you? Well, I suppose my mother and father initially thought the day wouldn't have to come again. So Are you close to your mum and dad? Yeah. 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 So like we tell each other, you know, I tell them everything, pick up the phone for everything kind of thing. But they are kind of, you know, I suppose as parents as well, they're kind of like, you know, they kind of block out the bad stuff. So they they kind of don't want to hear it either. Have you a know? cup, have a cup of tea, and walk it off. Yeah, job, yeah, yeah. Be grand. You'll be fine. You'll be grand. You'll be grand. You know this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And that's all they would ever say. They'd never be like. They'd never worry. Like probably worry you. Did you get any comfort from anyone that day? There was nobody in this earth that could give me comfort. You know, my husband's this very logical person. He's very like, you'll be fine. You get through it. Blah blah. I was like, no, that's it now. I'll be the one. They put it on the table because they have to stop your heart for four hours. And I was like, I'll be the one now. They won't even be able to get me started again. I'll be in heaven before anyone finds out. So in your head, you had a few weeks to live. Oh yeah, I made my will and everything, like dramatic. But but, you know, it was when I went in to meet my surgeon. Like I had all my questions, and I was like, so tell me how you're going to get in there. And he was like, do you really want to know? And I was like, yeah. He said, a saw, an electric saw. And then he, I says, um, what's my chances of dying? And he says, well, you could have a stroke. And and I had a list given to my husband as well, who was 
allowed in to see me if I had a stroke. So the only people who were allowed in to see me was him, my mother, my father, my sister and my first cousin. My best friend. They were the only people allowed because I had it in my head. I don't want anyone to see me now if I have a stroke or if I'm, you know, paralysed or whatever. So he told me that day the chances of all that happening were so minuscule or me dying on the table were so minuscule. But he might as well have told me there's a 50-50 chance because that's all I went home with going, right, so say his hand slips, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I don't mean to scare anyone that is going in for that procedure. But, but that's what you thought at the time. Oh, that's what I thought at the time. And like I couldn't even even after it and my surgeon became like um, nearly a psychologist to me. He sat at the end of the bed and I was like, what have you done to me? I can't do anything. And he was like, he was very good. He said to me, you're finding it so hard because it's your first major life experience and you have such responsibility. Like you have four small children, a husband, a house, you know, this kind of crack. So it's not normal for these kind of like life or death situations to hit you. And, you know, you'd be telling people things or I know people that know me or know of me be saying, what is the big deal? Like, you know, why, why all the the anxiety and the depression or whatever but like unless you're in that situation and like who like I was only 36 37 at the time like who wants to be thinking like that or who 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 gets that put up to them and then after the operation it's the whole the whole oh Jesus poor me why me were people supportive <coughs> after the operation or did you still feel somewhat alone oh yeah like people were very supportive you see, always see more the best in people than you do the worst in people, I think. And Irish people especially, like, fantastic. Like, you know, they're very, you know, people at the school get, now if you need us to do anything, just ring me. Or, you know, you get a load of that. But there's nobody that could understand, like, I never had an anxiety attack in my life until the week that I came out of the hospital. I didn't know what was going on. What was this thing that I was experiencing? But it's so much anxiety built up in myself. The attack was after the operation. <clears throat> after the operation. Because I think I would have had 17 of them before the operation. Yeah, I had. Now looking back, I had minor things. I had like, you know, sleepless nights and all that kind of stuff. And I cried myself to sleep so many times. I thought I had cried myself out of it by the time I had the operation. Yeah. And it wasn't until I'd had the operation that so much other stuff hit me. I don't, I don't even know where it came out of. And everything came up. Like everything. Wh- like what? Everything going back even to what happened to me in school. Why would you do something to someone like that? Why would you do it to me and look at me here now? You know, this really pity party stuff going on. But, you know, when I went to counselling then, it was like a traumatic event will always throw up past trauma. And like, you know, it was diagnosed with PTSD and all of that kind of stuff. I, PTSD after the operation? After the operation, yeah. And then <coughs> anxiety was that coming from the operation or from life and the pregnancies and the bullying? And I no, I think it was uh, it was just initially diagnosed after the operation. Um, but I just think everything just came on top of me, you know, years of suppressing that. Oh, sure, I'm grand. Were all the pregnancies okay? Yeah. They were grand. Like it was, it was great actually because they always said like you know, and I didn't realize until I'd had my operation what a big deal the pregnancies were. Like they used to always say, "Jesus, the best test your heart is pregnancy, and you do brilliant." And they'd be always way more delighted than I was. 
the doctors. And I was like, Jesus, why is he so excited? I'm only having a baby, you know? Did you ever feel any little bouts of depression after a pregnancy? Yes, my first baby. I had postnatal. Mild to moderate, as she said. <laughs> are you are you just are you playing that down a bit there now? If, if I asked Jimmy, would he say it was mild to moderate? I'd say he'd say, yeah, it was moderate. He'd definitely say it was something. But I think that's more of, that's a whole other story that you could set up a whole other podcast on. Uh, like that was more of a transition into motherhood, I think. And the shock of that and the loss of my independence and all that kind of side for it. What age were you with your first child? 30. Yeah, so it's young, like you're a model, young, you're young flying now, around the world, yeah. You're, yeah. you're doing whatever you want to do, going wherever you want to go. Yeah. Living your best life. Living your best life and then you're like, you know, you're newly married and, you know, I'm going to the gym and he's going off because he still plays GA and he's going off to a game and next thing you have a baby and he's going to train and you're like, uh, sorry, where are you going? <laughs> I'm here <laughs> with the baby. So, yeah, that transition was very hard for me, but I don't think... Um, yeah, I suppose maybe the whole past did get involved with that as well because I would always teach, try to teach my boys and I, I do genuinely believe they're very soft, kind of soft, kind souls. As in like, if there's anything that I want to teach them, it's just don't ever make anyone feel bad in themselves or something like that because, and, and they understand that, you know, and I know they understand it. I can see it in them. What age you is your oldest? Eleven. And your youngest? Seven. So I've ah, seven, brilliant. eight, so nine and a half and eleven. They're minding themselves now at this stage. It's brilliant. Yeah. You throw them a football and a box of biscuits. Throw them a football. Mammy is um, <laughs> doing something inside. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or now it's throw them the controller of the PlayStation. B or B homes make your dream home a reality. We do it all from start to finish. Your one-stop shop to becoming a homeowner. Log on to brbhomes.ie. Right, so we, we got a little bit sidetracked there. Sorry about mm. that. You were going to counselling then and you were diagnosed with PTSD. Mm. What next? So I did a lot of counselling and I did a... Were you, were you happy with the first counsellor you met? Yeah. That, yeah. That's good. Fabulous. That's good. I had the one. Were, were they recommended or how did you find yeah. them? I um through the GP generally yeah yeah recommended good and she became like another second mammy kind of thing she was that kind of a figure you went to your GP first and said mm-hmm. I can't cope oh yeah 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 um I just said like you know and he actually described it he said actually he said you're probably um what did he say something like you're probably the most clinically depressed person I have seen this year <laughs> do you remember that day yeah do you remember going in that day yeah what what was the trigger? What was the final thing that made you just go, I need to go and talk to my GP? Oh, I, I don't know. There was so much that I, I this is going to sound r- really strange, but my fourth pregnancy, I actually was carrying twins and I never knew I was carrying twins until I lost a baby. So fourth pregnancy, but was carrying twins, lost one really early and continued on the pregnancy and had my fourth boy but when I had him I used to always like you know be putting him to bed or whatever I nearly hear another baby crying in the background it was driving me mental it was like I never grieved for that baby because especially if you know you're telling people you lost a baby but aren't you having a baby you know and you have a baby I don't think I was ever let 
um, grieve that baby that I lost. So one day anyway, I was putting the baby to bed and there was a tricycle outside outside the window because I was putting him in downstairs by the sunroom. And I seen the tricycle like, you know, it was a windy day and I seen the tricycle going along the window or whatever. And I just had this vision that this was some sign from this baby of saying hello to me or something. I thought it was going crazy. I was like, I'm actually going down a bad road here. I just I'm imagining, thinking I'm hearing baby cry and all this kind of stuff. So I told my husband, <laughs> he was like, oh my God, <laughs> nuts. But no, he didn't say that. But how, re- like, how real was it for you? Like, oh, were, you, were you convinced there was a baby crying? I was convinced there was a baby crying. Yeah. I turn around and be like, Jesus, anyone. And I wouldn't really say it out loud because like people would think I was crazy. But whatever unresolved thing I had about losing that baby and then, you know, the joy of actually having a baby was just weird. It was just a weird time. And just everything, I suppose, was coming on top of me. Then I'd had the operation. I was having, I had the operation nearly, you know, very quickly after that. And it was just, uh, at that point, I just, I couldn't, I just had to do something. But I started counselling before I actually had my operation. I was in counselling for all that other stuff. I find it fascinating because I was in a relationship, a long-term relationship with a girl who had an abortion. And I didn't think it affected me. Until one, I I knew it. I knew it affected me, and I knew that I was upset about it, and I probably wasn't allowed to be upset about it, and I had to felt like I had to to roll with it. Mm. And then I remember it hitting me all of a shot, mm. and the counselor explaining to me what was happening. Mm-hmm. You know, you're grieving the yeah. loss, and you're, I, and I was saying to myself, "But how am I grieving a loss? Like, yeah, how? how? It doesn't make sense." I didn't have, like, I, w- I had nothing to do with it. I had no attachment. Mm. Yeah, but you but can only a r- fool yourself for so long. Yeah. yeah. I'm, not saying that I'm, f- I'm not saying that I'm for it or against it, and yes. I'm not getting into a debate about mm. that. But at the time, it wasn't right for her, and she had no other option. Mm-hmm. And that was fine. We had to, we had to go and do that. Mm-hmm. But, Jesus, I remember the day it hit me now, and I remember, I remember... It brings back a flashback and I, I, you know, I can see you in with the GP now and I can see you mm. devastated that day saying, yeah. I need help. Yeah. Yeah. And to, to be heard in there as well is another thing. Like he actually said, he was like, yeah, you, you just come across as you're like, you know, a ship in the middle of the sea and you're just reaching out for someone to grab onto you. I was like, yeah. Yeah. You know, your hu- my husband can only be there for so much of it, you know, like you can only offload to somebody so much but you need someone to talk it out you know was it stressful on the marriage no to be honest like it wasn't an issue that between us that um he'd come home and i'd be like a demon in a mood or anything like that you know like he had come home after i had the first child and i had postnatal and we laugh about it now and probably we laughed about it that night that he came home a few times and i'd be crying in one car and the baby would be crying in another and he would know who to go to first you know <laughs> like and we laugh about that now and you know even i think it's something to be i suppose married to someone that's that's nearly the opposite of your character as well in some ways you know he's very calm but you're lucky because there's plenty of relationships that wouldn't get over that can't get through that yeah yeah, and I mean... How did you get through it? 
it was never a major issue, you know, as in it was never something that came up with like, you know, him ever saying, oh, you shut up or like that. He would be very logical. You've always had a good relationship. Yeah. Yeah. He'd be very logical in where I couldn't see the logic. He'd put things in very simple terms. You sound like a perfect couple. Just an ostrich thing, Alan. Well, it sounds it sounds pretty perfect now. I'm trying to I'm trying no. to pick holes in it now. Just no, I tell you now, just <laughs> no such thing as. And anyone that tells you that, they're lying. <laughs> but it has it has to have been difficult. You're up in the room thinking you're hearing babies. You're losing yeah. you're losing your mind. He's mm. coming home from work. He mm. he has a a tough job. Yeah, he's coming home. You're in the corner, rocking mm. over and back, thinking you're losing your mind. <laughs> yeah, it can't have been easy for him. It can't have been as simple as, ah, oh, sure, it'll be grand and. It has to have been stressful on the marriage. I cannot. If it was, I tell you, because it would it'll help other people's story and their situation. Um, but like, yeah, the, those things did happen and whatever. But it was never. I was never one for like lying down and not getting on with it. He would say that it's like no, you have to get up now and you have to. You know, you go to the gym in the morning, and like the gym was a saving grace for me. It was just my headspace. And the kids could go into the drop-in centre. And, um, you know, I suppose he just thought where I, I wasn't able to think. And what I should be doing next. And, you know. Did you want to stay in bed and not get up? Yeah, physically. Physically, I would want to have. But there's something in motherhood then. You know, this just this draw. It's, it's a weird feeling. I was trying to tell my mother-in-law about it one time. That no matter how tired you are and no matter how mentally drained and exhausted you have to do it it's just he sounds like a pretty amazing man now to be fair yeah yeah he's understanding understanding yeah compassionate yeah yeah you fell on your feet fell on my feet yeah that's lovely yeah that's lovely yeah so tell me what's wrong with him Tell me the bad thing. He brushes the floor and he hides it behind the back door. <laughs> oh, what a bollocks. It was going so well. So well. What other flaws then. does he have? What other what other icks does he have that pisses you off? <gasps> He's talking about going back playing GA. He is not. What age <laughs> he is he? Is. He's 44, but he looks ah. about 24. Oh, oh, well, there's no need to boast now. <laughs> There's no need to be go boasting about it. He's 44. Yeah, he's 44. He's a good few years older than me now, come on. And I'd say, well, he must have always been um, involved in, was he involved in clubs then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. as a secretary or a trainer No, or no, something. no, like um, um, always same player. Because GA takes um, over your life. But GA is a way of life. If you're born into it, I used to go selling tickets then at the weekend and yeah, no, go down he, to the he, lotto. He, he never got into that. No, we had to, we were in nearly every lotto. But um, <laughs> he's, you know, I think as well, when you come from similar backgrounds, you're rural Ireland and your your life is school, GA, go to mass. And you go to mass, um, we used to like on a Sunday, go to mass on Sunday morning, get your ro- your cooked chicken straight after mass, go home, eat your dinner as quick as you could. And then you'd be gone for the day out because my father played. And like my father is 67 this year. He still brings his gear bag. He's in a young the man. Hope. Yeah, so he thinks. And uh, he brings his gear bag in the he, hope he'll be called he, in. Yeah. <laughs> to junior game. What a legend. Yeah, he played, he, he played a game about two or three years ago there. Does he have a nickname? No. no, no, he's just Jimmy Sullivan. They dropped the O for some reason down in Kerry, down in North Kerry. Jimmy Sullivan. Yeah. Jimmy the Beast. 
Christian. He has to have a nickname. If he's if he has the gear bag in the car at 67 and yeah. he thinks he's going to be called in. Yeah, and he'd be waiting now for a game for Ladies Walk because that's our junior team. But uh, yeah, and we do just be a nuts. We should organise a, a fathers and others. They're doing these mothers and others now. Yeah, my sister plays mothers and others. Yeah. Well, we should organise a fathers and others. Should. And grandfathers and others. Yeah. That'd be yeah. an idea now for you. Wouldn't a little it? fundraiser for the club. Wouldn't it now? There yeah. you go. I'll give you that one for free. Oh, great. Um, give me, tell me. Tell me one more ick about Jimmy. I'm fascinated to know. About Jamie, my husband, is that? Sorry, Jamie. Another ick. What else does he do that annoys you? Oh, sometimes he munches. And then he gives out to everybody else for munching. Drives me fucking crazy. What would he be munching? Anything. Like he'd crisps? Like, yeah, but he'd be like, you know... What's that saying? Eat an apple through a tennis uh, tennis racket. You know, that kind of like, oh my God. Yeah, but he gives out to everyone else then. About munching. Even the boys, the creators. Yeah. And do you say it to him when he's munching or do you just be there going? Oh, I just look at him with the big, dirty, disgusted eyes on me. And does he know? Oh, he knows. <laughs> She's like, after nearly 13 years of marriage, he's like, oh, what's wrong with her now? Right, so if Jamie was sitting there across from you and I asked him what's his biggest ache about you, what would he say? I'd say now he'd have that list that long. We wouldn't have enough time to get through it. But what is something that annoys him about me the most? I can, I I I can be a bit late. That's that's an easy one. Come on mm. now, you're being you're being too good to yourself there now. No, I can, I. I'm it has to, to be think. something else. Does your do you have makeup all over the place? Do no, because uh, I don't. I don't wear it unless I'm going out. Um, it has to be something else. Hair in the shower. Kind of crack. Yeah. Maybe. The long hair. Extensions. <laughs> <laughs> You've really caught me in the hop here now. I could have asked him, what's your ick? And he'd be like, right, get a pen and paper. It'll be the first question now when you get home. The, the minute I pick up the phone. Um, we're we're kind of going to and fro here, but it's still good yeah. crack. When you woke up in the I hospital, mm-hmm. what went through your mind in ICU? ICU so, is a very scary place. Oh. And I, I've been there. Oh, unreal. So um, we were, no. I was lucky that Jamie's father had open heart surgery 10 weeks before me. Unlucky for him. But when he woke up, I wanted to be in ICU to you're, see where he was. And you're not allowed. Oh, I was because it was just before COVID. But we were allowed because we were immediate family. And so me but and Jamie went up. When I was in there, you're only allowed in, is it a specific time? I think I was in there and only two people were allowed in at a specific time. Yeah, so it was me and Jamie that went up and it was the day after he had his open heart. So we were the first people to go into him. And just because I knew my surgery was coming up in 10 weeks, I was like, I really want to go in and see. You know, I just had to have a mental picture of what I was facing. And That was nice, in a way. In a way, not for him, but <laughs> for No, me. but it was nice in a way that you were able to go in and see. Yeah. I'd like that as well. Yeah. Some people probably wouldn't. Yeah, I I like that. I like the tour of the labour ward and I like to know where I'm going and what's going on. But went in anyway and two of us, we just started bawling crying. I started crying and I don't know what, why he was crying because I, I know he's father or whatever, but I don't know, was it a bit of, you know, it was I was just immersed was, in fear. Was he awake? No, he was kind of half, you know, he was only coming round. So describe it to me then. So he was in there half asleep, tubes everywhere, tubes everywhere. pipes everywhere. Yeah, beeping going on and off, one nurse there. um, And, you know, like, he just looks so sick and in so much pain. And he'd wake up and he'd be groaning. 
you know, that's kind of like painful groan. And I was like, oh my God, that'll be me like in 10 weeks. So I was crying. I was crying. I had, I was scared. I didn't want to touch him. Whereas Jamie was touching him. Jamie was kind of sobbing. Because he didn't want to see his father like that, obviously. But then he was thinking, I'm going to be coming back now in 10 weeks again to this. So when I had a massive fear of waking up from my operation, that I would be like him, that I wouldn't know where I was. I wouldn't know if I was dead or alive. So I had, I had him trained into to saying just when I wake up from the ICU just keep whispering into my ear that I'm alive that's all I wanted to know because they told me you know the tube will be down my throat I won't be able to talk which is as you can tell be a massive thing for me not to be able to talk so I'd be trying to talk the minute I woke up and I remember going down I suppose to to be put out for the operation I kept saying to them you know gonna you're gonna have to wake me up I have four small babies at home and that was just my biggest fear that I wouldn't wake up so when I woke up he was whispering the whole time um you're alive it's okay you're alive it's you're grand and you know my big fear as well was the pain was was he there the first time you woke up yeah yeah you were lucky yeah and my mother was there and my mother was there as well they must have been there for hours were they oh yeah they sp- he st- actually stayed in a hotel across the way so um my mother was up and i was I don't know where it came out of. I have no idea because it wasn't a plan at all. I started writing on their hand, you know, drawing out the alphabet, you know, the alphabet. And I, was, I kept drawing, I want to go home. I want to go home all the time. I was like, I have no idea where that came out of because that wasn't something I had thought I was going to do or whatever. So initially the reaction was, oh my God, isn't this brilliant? I'm alive. Isn't this amazing? I got through the operation. I don't remember much about it. I remember opening my eyes in the middle of the night and the nurse was at the bottom of the bed and things were beeping and that was it. It was like in the scene, next scene. I was in the high dependency unit. The high dependency unit is where, you're in, is where things kick off. It's where the drugs start wearing off and the pain starts coming. And my God, when I tell you the pain, I've had four children. I've had one by emergency section. I've had forceps, suction, I've had everything in a childbirth and I would have 40 children then have that open heart surgery again with the pain. It was just horrendous. From the tips of my fingers, the tips of my toes was sore. So then that's when the fun began. So had you the, the morphine then? We <coughs> Yes. Do you have your own button? No, I had it all through. It was in through my juggler vein. Everything, all the lines were put back in there. So... I couldn't see it, but like there was a load of things sticking out on my neck. But every time they put in the morphine, the smell of it, oh my God, it made me nauseous. You know, when I was on all that oxy and oxynorm and oxycontin, and of course I was giddy out when I was on all that. And I was saying, oh, I can't take that, I'm going to be sick. Because I, I was really making me nauseous. And I said, like, here, give it to me here and I'll sell it in the street. For the crack, there was zero crack coming back at the nurses and the doctors. They were like, no, now's not the time to be joking. But I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. I, it was like being paralysed. And I, I just thought, oh my God, it was the first time in your life you put everything else into perspective you know I was thinking imagine people that god forbid are in a car accident and they pick up like that and that's it this is the way they're going to be and I knew I was going to get better but did you yeah I did I always believe you know I knew I was going to get better but it was so hard to not actually I couldn't physically hold a phone I couldn't physically brush my teeth this went on I couldn't walk I couldn't sit 
I was in constant pain. It was just horrendous. Because everywhere, you know, like your whole chest bone is broken. So, you know. Was there any release ever? When I when I slept. <laughs> and that was rare. It must have been fairly broken, yeah. Yeah. And then your spirit gets broken. And then everything else. How long were you like this? In the physical pain or the... Yeah, the physical pain. Oh, the physical pain. pain. It was definitely, um, I would say, a good solid five or six days. Which must have felt like a month. Oh, every minute and every hour. You know, changing medications, trying to get me onto the right dose, trying to get me onto the right... Were you in a private room? Yeah, I was moved on to a private room. Um, I was a high dependency. There was three or four of us. And, you know, I couldn't understand, like, how all these... Because open heart surgery is a thing that, like, a lot of older people would have. It's not something, you know, some of my age would be having. And um, I even said to my surgeon, I was like, why am I feeling it so painful? And he was like, sure, a lot of them are, like, older men in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and they don't have the same nerve reactions and nerve problems. Like, you know, it was a young girl, like, you know, having your chest cut open and... And was there many people in and out to see you then at this stage? No, there were still small numbers. They were all taking turns between my mother, my father, my sister and my husband. Imagine doing it during COVID when no one's allowed into you. Yeah. What would you do? Yeah, I know someone, like people contacted me that were having that surgery. That's horrific, like. Yeah. It's absolutely scandalous. Now, the only thing about it all is, yes, you would need somebody there. I think the most important is when you wake up to know where you are. You know, that that initial, like, I'm alive kind of thing. After that, though, you're so, you're so down and you're so everything. Nobody and nothing could cheer you up. You know, like, there's, uh, you're in pain. I had a discussion with Cowboy Kelly and we were sharing ICU stories. And I remember I had to be resuscitated in the resuscitation room. But the only thing I remember was a nurse stroking the back of my hand. Mm. And I've always said it, she's this beautiful red-haired nurse. Mm. And I just remember when I was resuscitated, I was trying to jump up off the bed. Mm. But she kept telling me, you're all right, you're all right, yeah. you're all right. And she just kept rubbing and rubbing and rubbing. Yeah. And that is all I can remember. But I just remember how appreciative I was yeah. of her being there. And like I, I fell in love with her. Yeah. And in- instantly. The same with my two nurses that looked after me. The, the girl that took me into a shower and had to, and I was mortified. And she was the most gentle nurse. And the Indian nursing who took care of me, like, you know, she was like a mammy. <laughs> you know, like they're coming in and they eat like that, the little soft strokes and the whatever, and just someone to tell you, you're all right, you'll be fine. I got a flashback there <laughs> because my clothes had to be cut off me. Right. And I remember thinking, I'm not sure if I had clean jocks on. Yeah. I'm not sure if I yeah. <laughs> was I wearing them all day or did I change them before I came in <laughs> and I was like oh not that they would, wouldn't have been clean yeah. but I'm just saying it, it's amazing the things that go through your head oh yeah somebody saw my underwear yeah oh, look at take, I, I've taken the underwear having to go into a shower with a girl that was younger than you you have to have four kids yeah. <laughs> I'm like oh please so when, you're, when, you, when you came through this then how long were you in hospital for? eight days and, and then when it came to, when it came, because I saw your photo there where you had the lovely dress on and you were leaving the room. Yeah, I found that yesterday. Found and you that. looked lovely. And it's hard to, it's hard to imagine everything you had been through by looking at that mm. photo. Because, you know, you always look so gorgeous. What was going through your head then when you were leaving that day? 
I po- I only found that photo last night. It was mad. And I remember immediately I looked at that photo and I, I was inside in Aldi yesterday and the tears started to come. And I was like, Jesus, what's going on here now? And I immediately placed myself back at that minute where I remember that photo being taken. And I remember the sadness and the emptiness and the, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what was happening to me mentally, what was going on. When? In Aldi or? No, in, in, in that photo. Okay. Taking that photo at that time. I didn't know, you know. Like, Did you ask for it to be taken? Um, I don't know. I think himself was he was so delighted I was coming home and like I was yeah and like you know I put on my oh I'd lo- I'd lost but nine pounds in that in that eight days I was like oh this is the best diet ever but you didn't know at this stage you're going to be documenting it not at all I had a clue um I I'd had a tan because I'd be quite um sallow skin and remember we had a little bit of a tan at the time and um Trevor was telling me I was looking great. You, you did. Look, you do you look, look great. great. Yeah, yeah. You know, you look great. You know, this is the crack. Like you come out of the hospital, and he was like, "I was literally dying on the inside and dying on the outside. The ex- the physical pain on the outside was just unbearable, and then the mental pain on the inside. And I, it was just shock. My whole body was shocked. My mind was shocked of what had just happened and what could have happened. And it's a lot of trauma for the body. Yeah. You know, even the doctor, the surgeon said that. He said, we're operating on your chest and your heart, but your whole body down to the tips of your feet will feel it. Because your whole body's just been opened up. Yeah, it's your engine. It's your, yeah. main, it's your main engine. Yeah. So, yeah, I just remember that picture being taken. Do you have a scar went, now? Yeah. Big where, scar. Where does that go from? Um, goes from the tip here. Oh, you'll see it on all my posts. I, I've never hid a scar and it goes quite down. And then I ha- now I have three bullets as well. I didn't, didn't have the three bullets at all before. But the bullets were the drains. So And they're they're actually lovely and um, neatly all matched up. Symmetrical. Yes. Yeah. It looked like a weird <laughs> tattoo that God gave me. But <laughs> And when they were taking out the drains, everyone was saying to me, you know, the nurses be coming on like, now, you know, bit by bit every day, you'd be getting a bit better. They'd be taking out a, um, a needle or they'd be taking out the thing for your neck and they'd be taking you off this and they'd be taking you off that. And the drains are the last thing to come out and they're like, oh, when the drains come out now, you'll be grand, you know. And the drains were like rods inside in your body. Like you couldn't move with them. Terrible yokes. And they were pulling them out and the middle one got stuck. So to get the surgeon, I was lying on the bed with the drains half in, half out of me and to get a surgeon to come down and nick drain with a knife while I was freshly just lying there and I I'd had gone so, through so much at that stage sounds basically. like something that would happen a sheep stuck in in a barbed wire fence I may have been a cow calving at yeah. that stage I was just I just like whatever whatever and mentally I think you know you're in that kind of medical situation whatever you're getting done it's always a you know, it's it helps, I think, if you have a process in your mind of going, right, I have to get this done now today. That'll be done. We'll go on to next thing tomorrow. You, you keep having to do it step by step. Or you'd never get through it. It's like, right, when these drains now come out, I'll be able to take a deep breath and be able to breathe. Are you still um, going to see a counsellor? No, no. When did you finish up there? Um, I finished up, I suppose, maybe close to the year after my operation. Just we came to a natural end. I had spewed everything out and a year was a long time fair, yeah. fair play that's yeah. a lot of work yeah it's a lot of work it's a lot of work because yeah. I know when you're coming out of it you're wrecked drained I like when I came out of my sessions I had to go home to bed yeah you'd be drained but you'd be elated at the same time 
it'd be like a load gone off. I was doing a breakfast show in Galway and I, I'd leave the I'd leave work or whatever it was at 12 or 1 o'clock that day because I'd been up since 4. And then I had to drive two hours to the session because I didn't want anyone to know where I was going or what mm. I was doing. And I'd go into the session and then I'd get home and it'd be around 5 that evening. And I'd be asleep until 4 o'clock. Mm. I would sleep that evening until I might get up around nine and have a slice of toast or something. Mm. But I remember the tiredness. It was just another level yeah. of tiredness. Yeah. And I know I didn't feel like I didn't feel, say, great. I didn't feel like, oh, it's a great weight off my mind. But I definitely felt more relaxed that I could sleep. Yeah. You know, I, I felt, oh, I'm wrecked now and I, I'll have a lovely sleep. And yeah. I did have a lovely sleep. Yeah. I get that. It, it, like it's hard to it's hard to describe. Yeah, but it's it, like it's so relate because that's what it is. Like you would be so drained from and so tired from letting all that out. And but in another way, it's like it's lovely when somebody else that you're letting it out to can rationalize and tell you what all that is. And then you feel like, oh, Jesus, that's lovely. That's like a weight lifted off me now there. You said something really interesting there. You said you were in Lidl and the tears came. And the first thing you said was, what's this about? Mm. Do you analyse all your emotions now? Yeah. Do you, yeah. Have you learned to do that since the therapy or did you always do that? Um, A bit of both, I would say. Because um, it's, it's something I start doing since therapy. Yeah. Um. I, I I suppose more since I do therapy because, um, you know, we're, we're all so much more in tune with our feelings and all this kind of crack. And, um, and that's a good thing. But I know what things are now, whereas I suppose before going to counselling, I didn't know what it was and I didn't know, um, you know, why I felt like why something that happened to me when I, somebody said something to me when I was 14 or 15 in secondary school in North Kerry affected me as a 30 year old you know, whatever. Um, but I, I, I am, you know, I, I, I understood then why I felt the way I felt. I think it's really important. It's really important to, to listen to your feelings and listen to your, to your body. A woman asked me two days ago, how does the negative messages not affect you? Mm. Because she said she gets a few in her work. Her work page gets a few, you know, and she said it really affects her. And I said, I think you could send me abusive messages five days a week and then the sixth day I might get pissed off. Mm. But it's not the message that pisses me off. It's wherever I'm at that day. Mm. So the same, you you could be getting the same messages for six days, but on the sixth day then, it affects you. Mm. And I don't think, oh, this bastard now. Yeah. I think, whoa, why is that after affecting me now? What Mm. happened? Am I tired? Do I need to eat something? What's yeah. what's going on with me now that that has upset me? Yeah, and that's a good way then because you're the one in control, you know. And that's like that's what counselling I think teaches you, you know, to give back all the shite to the other person, and t- to all the you know the negativity to who's whoever's given it to you, and to deal with you know what you're feeling. Like this could turn into a right psychology kind of a lesson, but you know, like. That's why um, I just leave so much stuff go now. Nothing really matters, you know, bar my family and that kind of stuff. Is there a fear of having another operation? There is. 
It's, it's a possibility. It's a possibility. Again, they tell me that the next, because I'll have to change this valve every 10 to 15 years. So they've told me, oh, the next one now and the next three, they've told me, will have will be into the groin. But they've also told me that the last time. So I take that as a pinch of salt. Now, I'm expected to go into the groin the next time, but... Does it hang over you or do you let it go mm. until... Yeah, I, I, I spoke a lot about, um, you know, immediately after I had my operation, I felt like there was a, a physical clock over my head with time telling me it was more behind me than it was than I had left. And that's gone. And that had been gone for a while. And sometimes lately I've been thinking, right, what year is it now? 2023. And I've been doing the maths and I'm like, right, I'm nearly up to halfway now. How many more years do I have? So I need to stop. I need to get myself out of that thinking now not allow that to come in is there a possibility it could be longer yeah yeah it, it might mightn't be 10 years it might no, be 20 could be 30 mm. you know and it probably will you're you're a fit woman and please god you know you're not gone mad drinking and smoking and partying no. and no <laughs> no <laughs> so what do you want to do with yourself now like the page is, is taken off you're doing great work you're mm. you're very real and honest yeah and have you have you sat down to think this is what i'd like to do now yeah. Um, so you're working yes. a couple of days a week. Yeah, I work two days a week in the medical centre. You're a very, very busy mum with four active boys. Mm. Mm. You have a lot going on. Yeah. What would you like to do next? I would love to get into kind of more of this kind of thing. More of chatting about my experience, kind of more, not motivational speaking, because I don't think, I don't know if I've all the, the know-how for all of that. But, but you know, your, your life experience is the know-how. Mm. That's the know-how, so you do have it. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it just needs a little bit of structure. Yeah, true. I'm enjoying what I'm doing now, but I do want to go more into this this kind of side okay. of it, you know. This, I do, I, this is probably the most enjoyable part, I find, of my page. Telling my story so people know where I'm coming from. They understand. And then they'll get my page, you know. They'll get... Like, I put up reels there, and they're always take the piss, you know. They're not something that I'm literally would do with my kids or what I think and then you'll get the one comment that'd be like going oh you're so ungrateful you know you're such an ungrateful mother and I'm like I am literally taking the piss like this is only a real it's not real life you know um do you get much hate in your dms um yeah uh, no not much but you've got more from men from men from men in your dms yes not in your comments not in my comments i've had one or two from the comments i've had one or two from women and what do they followers what do they say in your dms uh so some lad was like said to me why you keep coming up on my feed you i hate the word i'm going to say it retarded i hate that word um retarded bitch and another lad was like you're such a retarded mother i put up a video of me and the boys doing something I don't know what we were at that kind of stuff and then like I, I said I had something I had a reel up about I don't know what it, I actually can't remember what reels because there's, there's so many reels at this stage but it was something like you're such an ungrateful woman you're such an ungrateful mother you should be happy to have your children and she's not a follower so obviously she hasn't a clue of my story and you know if you knew me at all and you knew my page I always I speak a lot about gratitude and being thankful and does it bother you when a man slides into your DM and says you're an ungrateful or you're, no. you're a retard no it, it actually doesn't I usually end up laughing and I show my husband straight away do you though 
Or like does it does a tiny bit of it niggle away at you? Do you do you, do you question yourself for a minute and kind of go, hang on now, did I do something wrong there? Or do you just block No, it? I more would be annoyed that he wouldn't know um I'd be more annoyed he actually wouldn't know me or the story, do you know, or my backstory. And I'm thinking, sure, he doesn't even follow me. He's seen a seven second clip of something that came up on his page. But he actually took the time then to message you. I'm thinking, what a sad and I won't say it. See you next Tuesday. But and you know ha- have you got any hate from women? Not personal hate in my DMs. And um, because most of my followers are women and I've experienced the absolute opposite, which I've never had before. Lovely. You know, like if it's like it's like the little girl gang I never had. Um, you know, um, but I've had it publicly, you know. I actually saw so there last night I put up something about um I do this reel about, you know, every Irish mother's um, remedies to sickness. And it was a bottle of Sudocream and a bottle of 7-Up, you know, and someone commented, not every Irish mother. I know. I was like, I get them all right, Karen, (laughs) relax. I'm not saying it's you, you know, Jesus Christ, we're a bit of crack. But then, and of course, I went into her to like, see, is she a follower or whatever? She's not a follower. And then somebody has, she posted one thing. Be kind. No, she po- <laughs> she posted her own thing and the amount of comments that people had commented on her and totally slated her and on the comments was, you come in with your, all your horrible comments to my page and whatever. So I was like, oh, well, there you go then. Lovely. You know, it's let them off. There's no point. Why did you keep your name when you got married? Number one, I've no brother and I was very conscious of just no Sullivan. Jesus, left. you're very patriotic. I'm on... Believable. Yeah. Yeah, I'm unbelievable. And as well, I like well, like when I go home, because I live in County Meath, and then when I go home to Kerry, sure everyone knows, everyone who I know in the village that I'm from would know me as Lisa O'Sullivan. So who's Lisa Shaw? Like down in Bydoff. So you were afraid of losing your identity? Um, Maybe. I'd never thought about it like that before. I, d- I just like the old part of me. I'll just bring her along as well. Did it ever come up with your husband? Not at all. Couldn't give to? Not at all. Couldn't give. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I once it, like the boys are all Shaws. They're just, they just have his last name. Right. I don't dare double bar theirs at all. Lisa, thanks a million for coming down and being so honest. I, I really appreciate it. It's not easy to talk about the things you've, you've spoken about today. And I really admire you. You've, you've been through a lot. Hmm. And from outside looking in, you know, you, you keep the best side out all the time. I know you do come on and you're real. Mm. But you always look like a million dollars. You always have a smile on your face. But you've, you know, you've been through a lot. Mm. Do you appreciate that? Do you, do you acknowledge that yourself and say, I've been through a lot, I'm great? I would say I've been through a lot. Um, and I would uh, acknowledge to myself, fair play for keeping the head up. You know, I would never think that I'm great now or anything um, because, you know, it's just you keep going. I don't have a choice to keep going. I have four little boys, you know, and you do it for them and you show a lot lot of things to them as well. You know, even though unbeknownst to you, resilience, you know. When you were having the boys, did any part of you want a girl? Oh, I would have loved a girl. I would have loved a girl. And when I lost the last baby... I was like, 
I'd say that was a girl. But I always went to four children. And my most pet peeve in life would be people who would say to me, did you always want four or are you just going for the girl? Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So since I, sometimes I throw into a total stranger my baby lost story. Aren't people dickheads? To, oh, unreal. Unreal. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I want four children and thank God. And I always say thank God. Is it older people that say that? Yeah, a lot of older people. I spoke to yeah. somebody recently that didn't know who their dad was. Mm. You know, and he said he encountered some older people that kept going. But who's your father? Yeah. You know, in a village you might say, well, who are you now? Yes. I'm yeah. I'm Michael Burke. Yeah, but who's your dad? Yeah. Who's your dad? And he's like, oh, my mum is Mary Burke. Yeah. Yeah, but who's your father? Yeah. And they just don't let it go. No. Different world. That's a horrible thing to say. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then I had, after my fourth baby, I went into a shop one day in Navin. The girl says to me, oh, my God, what did you have? And then I says, another boy. And she goes, oh, you must be so disappointed. To my face. <laughs> it's like, no, actually, I'm not. He's here and he's healthy. I'm delighted. But that was just the, the oddest thing to say to someone after a baby. Did you know what you were having? Yes. Yeah, I did. So it wasn't a shock then? or No, anything. it wasn't were, a shock. You know, but nobody ready. else knew what we were having. Yeah. But I wanted to know for the last few boys, for the last few babies, because I didn't want this whole, oh, another boy kind of thing. I just want to always be that day to be excited. You know, it's a baby. And we're always delighted then. How are the boys getting on? Have they experienced any kind of... I know they're young, you know, mm. the youngest is 11, but I know um, I was talking to somebody who has a 13-year-old and... He he was getting bullied on the bus recently mm. on the way home from school. Have any of your boys had any no. encounters? No. Because um, you'd be on high alert now. Like I'm on massive high alert, you know. And um, I do know that one of my boys, and that works both ways, because you teach them not to be like that or don't accept that from anybody, but don't be like that to anybody as well. So long story short, you know, if you heard one of my boys didn't do something nice to someone of his friends. So we marched him in to the house and we knocked at the door and we made him say his piece to apologise and whatever because that will not be accepted that kind of stuff brilliant mm. those boys are going to have a hard time now in a few years in secondary school because if 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 one of my friend's mother looked like you <laughs> we would give him a hard time and that, that has, a, has already started has it <laughs> with the oldest one or who has it <laughs> And he's only eleven. Oh, yeah, he plays on a he plays on a lot of teams, and he's. If, if oh, I can, because there was there was there was one in my school. I'm not going to mention any names, but there was one, and his mother, and we were all like, "Oh my god, <laughs> your mum, what a milf!" Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like we didn't even know what milf what yeah. what it translated into. Yeah, but yeah. we just knew. God. Yeah, I've already had my eleven year old come home a few times and be like, "Mommy." Such and such said, I actually can't repeat what they said. Oh, please, please do. I, I, no, I can't. Go on. I, I'd be mortified. Please do. No. Tell us. I'm dying to know the mentality of an 11-year-old and what's been said. Uh, the, this, these well, boys now were two years older than him. Right, so 13. Exact training. And he came home and says, Mommy, such and such said, oh, look, Callan, this is me to your mum. And he started <gasps> making actions. I was like, my god oh my god oh my god yeah yeah and and what did jamie say 
Does he know? Oh, he does know, yeah. I'm trying to think, did he laugh first or whatever? Yeah, just just like, oh, what can you say? What can you say? The good thing is like, that the boys take no notice. They just take no notice. Like They're, they're great crack. Well, like, I hope it stays that way because it's going to come thick and fast. Yeah, I hope it stays that way too. When you're it's landing in for parent-teacher meetings in secondary school, it'll, <laughs> trust me, <laughs> trust me, it's going to come. <laughs> All ahead of me. Yeah. But the minute they just take no notice and they just say, how are you? How are you, old one? They come in. Or how are you, old hen? Who says that? My boys. They call you the old hen? Yeah, but my, my second eldest, he's some character. <laughs> he is, how are you, old hen? Or how are you? And my oldest lad calls me Lizzo. You can guess why. All right. <laughs> For the crack. Because he knows it'll wind you up a bit, in. Um, he, yeah, he thinks it will. But I just start bursting laughing. There's great, um, there's great fun in my house. That's good. Yeah, there's great crack. It's good that they're characters like that. They are. They're characters. My my second lad who calls me the old hen, he's a redhead. He's my only redhead. Comes to my husband's side. And I have that lad. I have him. He's the most confident child in a good way. But he's the softest soul. But he's so confident. And I have him ready. Because I was like, you're going to get tortured when you're at school. You'll be going to call ginger this and ginger that. He's an answer for everything. He's the wittiest child you know, like someone, one of his brothers call him a ginger something. He'd say, I'm actually strawberry blonde. Yeah, but ginger is becoming kind of cool now. Yeah, well. I, and I hope it does. It wasn't, when it, does, it wasn't yeah. when I was in school because yeah. you were always the ginger bollocks or you were yes, this, that, Yeah, and it's always followed by something like that. But, yeah, but you know. I think Ed Sheeran and Prince Harry and a few more are, yeah. ma- are making it cool and I hope it continues to I go I hope that it way. does, but because, you'll always have it. But uh, ginger people are beautiful. Oh, Fabulous. They're so like, so beautiful. Yeah, my my husband's um, two nieces, red hair, and the most beautiful, beautiful hair. Like people pay to get that hair. Yeah, you know. I was talking to a girl who's ginger, and she went to. I don't even like the word ginger. No, I don't either. I, I don't use it now, yeah. and I go mad when the boys use I, it about him. I was talking to a girl who has red hair, and she was in China, mm. and she said that she couldn't walk down the street. Really? That she was plagued yeah. everywhere she went white white skin and red hair yeah and apparently all the ladies want to have white 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 skin yes yeah and all the men want to be with the the red-haired lady with the white 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 skin Hmm. and she said that if you've red hair and white skin don't go to china okay i'll go home (laughs) tell him that he's not allowed to go anywhere they have to live with me forever oh good luck with that yeah how are you gonna how are you gonna cope with the teenage discos I don't know, but their father can't wait for them to be coming home. <laughs> well, th- th- that's where it becomes a little bit easier to have boys than girls. Yeah. I know it's a because li- in our house, um, I have a niece and nephew and I know that the the nephew is a, is a year behind the niece and there was great, there was almost pressure on the nephew to start going to them to keep an eye on the niece. Yes, Whereas, and that's where I think I'll be with my oldest. I'll be like, you can go now when, when Dylan goes with you. Yeah. And then you can go when Reen and Reese go with you. Because she's really independent and mad to go and dying yeah. to go places and up for the crack. And he'd be, he'd probably be a little bit similar to me where he wouldn't be too bothered and he'd potter around. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Any pressure on a phone yet? No. He knows well, not until even secondary school. I don't even know what the the actual... It's around now though. It's be. around 11, 12, 13. Yeah, yeah. Some of his friends are, have. In, no. in national school? Yeah, national school. Yeah. Do they yeah, bring the them into school class. with them? Fifth class? Yeah. 
Fifth class. Yeah. Oh, this is a big debate. We won't have time to get into it today. Yeah, no, it won't be a debate in our house, not until uh, for, I suppose, secondary school. It puts a lot of pressure on the parents because Danny has one. You see, that, that is a whole other podcast. Yeah, it is. I'm not into, I don't care what he has. And I'd be trying to tell them, but I think this is the one thing as well, they live out in the countryside. And once you leave the school, you know, at three o'clock, you're gone and you're out and you're outside in the field and you're kicking a ball and they have the neighbour across the way and he comes over and back. And you don't have that, I suppose, added pressure, the after school of, oh, we go home and we'll bring out whatever we have, you know. Yeah. We just don't have that. Thank God. Have you any questions for me? No, I have, I, I'll probably think of them now the minute we stop this. <laughs> well, you're not allowed to ask me the minute it's finished. Yeah. You have I'm to like, leave now and I never want to hear from you again. Yeah. <laughs> when you're sending me a load of Northern Hemisphere stuff, I suppose. You can have any amount of Northern Hemisphere <laughs> stuff, but um, I'm, ru- I'm running low on stuff now at the minute. But the end of February, would you model for me? I will, of course. Will you, yeah, honestly? I will. No bother. Are you expensive? We'll, I'll do you a deal. I'll Will get you? my people to talk to your people. Do I have to go through an agent now? Oh, sure, yeah. I don't want to be yeah. given agent you know, fees. No, I was actually thinking, no, I'm not with anyone at the minute. So that's my next step. I need to get myself, I'm going to get back an agent, probably modelling, and I need to get an agent for... Be careful with the agent for social media. Yeah. And take your time. Mm. And don't sign any contracts initially. Right. Because it's a bit like the therapist. You have to find the one that's right for you. Mm-hmm. You know, or don't don't jump in because Mary's with her. Right. I would take my time with it and I would know know your own worth and know your own value. Mm. And I can help you with that. Yeah. Because Let's talk more of a tea and cake. Yeah, I deal with a lot of influencers through other businesses that I'm involved in and other mm. uh, other businesses that I help. And I, I've learned an awful lot the last couple of years because I was, the whole influencing thing took off for me from ripping the piss out of influencers but I've always been working with them I've always yeah. been in the background and I've always so it's it's easy for me I've, I've learned it from all angles basically but there's huge value in your page and in, the word influencer is a dirty word now as well yeah I'm blogger yeah I, like I saw a, an article on the independent last night uh, influencer skips the queue to take a selfie because she says she's obnoxiously gorgeous Th- that was the headline and it was a photo of a girl taking a selfie of herself. And when you click into it, it was this nothing story about a woman in Texas who went up to the top of a queue to get a photo with somebody in a selfie. And here's the Irish Independent writing about it. Mm. And all the comments were influencers are a drain on society yeah. and they're yeah. this, that and the other. And, you know. Yeah. And then I saw somebody the last day insulting an influencer saying I would never buy anything from an influencer mm. not to mention you and when I went into her profile everything was Nevin Maguire oh. and Nevin Maguire is one of the biggest influencers in the country Yeah, but she doesn't realise that mm. so if Mary is on selling a blouse Mary's a gobshite yeah. but Nevin Maguire can promote rashers and super value mm. and your one goes in buying the rashers not realising that she's been influenced by Nevin Maguire yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, it's just the perception of um it's the perception of them. It's a perception of influencers slash bloggers. It goes back to like being back at school. Oh, she thinks she's all this, he thinks he's all that. Yeah. It's the same with everything. I mean, yeah. you know. Yeah. It's never in cycle. You're you're doing some great work and it's very positive and fair play to you for everything you've done because nothing is nothing you've spoken about has been easy. 
and keep her lit. I will. I will, surely. Thanks a million. Uh, tell us Thanks the name so. of your page if people would like to follow you. So it's Modern Irish Mom. Are you just on Instagram? Just on Instagram. Okay. It's enough for me. <laughs> okay. Lisa O'Sullivan Shaw, Irish Modern Mom. Uh, modern Irish Mom. Modern Irish Mom. <laughs> At Modern Irish Mom. Go and check her out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Big News Coming Soon podcast is proudly sponsored by BRB Homes. BRB Homes is Ireland's number one award-winning manufacturer of factory-built homes. We take your home from start to finish. Our homes are A-rated and meet planning regulations. We build to your requirements and your budget. The cost includes your home being turnkey and our chartered engineer's fees. Please get in touch reviewing of our show homes a brochure or for more information let brb homes take the stress out of your build check out brbhomes.ie